Hey, Joe. Hey, what time is it? It's time for another episode of Runtime Run Run Rundown. Let's, Let's go. go. Hello, Evan. Hey, Joe. How are you doing? What's up? Not. Oh, I'm good. We're doing great already. <laughs> it's only episode. We've, we've, it's only episode. Fill good. in episode number here. <laughs> yeah, we've never gotten good at this part. Yeah, we should probably talk through at some point. Like, at some point, how we, yeah. How well, we yeah, systemize, just systematize the intros because we're like, hey, yeah, episode. It wouldn't be as all loosey goosey like this. This is what the the listeners come for. Loosey goosey, that's right. They come for unstructured (laughs) content. Um, (laughs) uh, There's a big thunderstorm. There's a big thunderstorm. So that's what's happening here. My dog is attempting to live inside me right now. (laughs) Um, And he's very big and his claws are very sharp. So nice. You might hear a couple of yelps out of me. Yep. I think we should. I think we sh- we should shift our pre-show conversation. In we should like stop doing as much of that because then we start the show and we're like, "So what's going on?" I don't know. We've just been talking about what's going on for the last thirty minutes. For what's like going thirty on minutes. You? Yeah, we. Because <laughs> I was just going to say, like, "What's new with you, Joe?" I'm like, "Oh, but I just listened to you talk for thirty minutes." Yeah. Uh, what's new with you, Joe? <laughs> well, uh, let's see. My dog is sleeping. My dog does not care about about thunderstorms at all. That's a huge win. Oh, I have some pre article talk to talk about yeah i don't Um, have any podcast to uh to apologize to this week i've got a good i've got i've got some good a hot new uh youtube content producer came out of the market recently oh yeah Um, i I saw some sweet developer videos about making a tetris game oh Um, that's cool so yeah it was really good um i think the user that made them the only gripe i have is that they used Vim, obviously, uh, which oh. was just a disaster to watch. But other Ugh. than that, one massive problem, these Tetris videos were great content. So we'll link those in the show notes. Appreciate that. It, Appreciate it was obviously that. Joe that made them, the uh, the Vim <laughs> king himself. They're kind of long. They're kind of uh, they're kind of long. But but uh, I I was thinking about who I was going to make these videos for and. Um, I, I was kind of making them for somebody like me. So I like watching on YouTube. I like watching people write code. I just, I like doing it. And there are some people who write this, like, you know, they have these kind of really crafted videos where they're, they edit everything way down and they, and they do it really clean and nothing goes wrong. But like, I don't know, to me, it's, it's a lot more interesting to watch a video of somebody working through problems. Like that's just, that to me is way more interesting to see problem solving than, than just see something perfect from the start. So that's why the videos are a little bit long there. It's like a seven part series. They're around 20 minutes a piece. Um, stuff goes wrong a little bit in the middle stuff goes unexpected. Um, and it's not, I, I tried to make it a little bit like not too rambly, but, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's real. It's not, it's not super, uh, perfectly. It's not a, you know, with a, with a bow on it. Well, I think it's, um, I like all of, there's different types of YouTube content, but yeah, there's like that super polished, um, happy path only video, which, which I do enjoy just to get a kind of quick and quick, like ground floor view of something. So fire ship that is a good example of that, but we're going to build something and it's just like the most perfect example of it. It's super, it just all flows super easily. And I always think like that would never happen if I did that. Like if I were to spin this up and say, I'm going to build this right now, I'd be, I would hit like 42 walls on the way to it. But, um, 
I always I like seeing that type of content because it's satisfying. But then what what I learn from more is the type of content that mimics more how I actually work, which is the sort of this hunt and peck type of methodology where you're like, I'm gonna tr- I'm gonna try this, push on this a little bit, doesn't really work, so I'm gonna go push on this a little bit, doesn't you know that works, and then follow that path down. And that's what these Tetris videos were. So I thought that was really cool. Nice. Um, I'm uh, I'm glad that glad that you enjoyed them. I hope I hope some other people will enjoy them too. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, I I got I got one question for you. What What is it? What you reading? That was good. You did it after the music instead of before. <laughs> I like that. Okay. So today we're talking about an article called My Journey to Become a Staff Software Engineer by a person named Mark Skelton. Uh, we'll link this in the show notes. And this this week, it's my turn to get the TLDR. And luckily, he wrote one for me, which is awesome. So my homework was completed for me. Um, the, the whole article is just about how this person got to where they are in their career, which is a um, staff engineer. We can talk about what that means. Um, but the TLDR is simple. It's try things out. These are the things that he did that got him to where he is. Try things out, teach what you learn, read documentation, get good at Google, relentlessly improve efficiency, chase your passion, stay humble, embrace your team's norms and challenge the status quo. And that was so many things. I apologize. I got tired halfway through. Um, <laughs> But that's th- those are the things that this person did, and he kind of breaks down each one of those in further detail um, about some examples. But that's the TLDR: is just um, do these things and become staff engineer. And step three is profit. Simple. It's as simple as that. That was a good. That was a good TLDR. That was a good. Uh, yeah, good overview. I. I um, yeah, I, I. I really like this article too. I. I. Uh, I. Uh, you know, agreed with. Just about everything. There was one of these. There's one of these numbers in the TLDR that I that I slightly disagreed with, and uh, we can talk about that. I'm curious if you uh, if you have any any thoughts on which one it might be. I was, as you said it, I was trying to think which one. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll get to it. Yeah, we can talk um, about it. Yeah, there, there's also a couple that I mean, obviously, like so. Yeah, great article. There's this is no um, this is no criticism of uh, Mark Skelton, but um, but uh, it, you know it's 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 incomplete. But like I feel like we should kind of say that not that it's inc- not that he like didn't write, uh, not that he finished halfway through, but there are, there are other things that I think are important to think about when you're talking about yes. cr- career progression, especially as you get into your kind of like middle career because. Middle career is kind of a kind of a funny place to be. You're 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 when you're in the more junior part of your career. I think there's a lot of uh, it's pretty easy to find mentors. It's pretty easy to find people who have done the path that you are trying to do. Um, but as you get your way, as you work your way, your, work your way up into senior engineer, staff engineer, principal, it gets harder to find people who you can kind of go to as a as a mentor or uh, yeah, I guess mostly as a mentor. Yeah, it's also just as a, I want to start with this because I wanted to get to this. So staff engineer, titles are really weird in our industry. I think so in in other industries that have professional organizations that surround them. So think about like uh, lawyers or uh, mechanical engineers or something like that. There's, There's sort of a hierarchy that's defined partly by either a union or a professional organization or something. 
that's not everyone, but in software engineering, or I guess software development, whatever you want to call it, titling is even sort of more difficult to understand to me because you'll have in, like entry level associate, whatever. Then you've got like just engineer and then there's senior engineer, but you can be a senior engineer with like two years of experience uh, in the industry. Um, and then there's like, then there's the staff and then sometimes people call it principal and then there's staff plus roles, which are, which is like staff, senior staff and beyond. You can be a staff engineer at a small company and be a mid engineer at a different company. It, so it just, they don't, there isn't like one, oh, I broke the staff level and here I am, I've arrived. Uh, so I kind of want to just note that, that it is a bit confusing. So, um, and that's not to say anyone who is at any level isn't at the level they deserve. It's just to say the industry, quote, quote unquote, hasn't like figured out a standardization for that. So right. I, I did want to say that out loud is like the, you know, this person is a staff engineer with five years experience. Um, I'll have just said hello. My dog's trying to dig through things. So it's going to be a doggy episode. Um, but there is that sort of what is what is a role across different – what is like a title across different roles? And this person has five years as a, uh, into staff engineering. Uh, and some may say that's not enough or some may say that's the right amount. Um, but it is sort of brings me to this thought of that not every year is created equal across developers. Similarly with not every company – has the same structure. So like you can be a staff engineer at a small company that doesn't count for whatever, a bigger company. You can also have 10 years experience and still still be in the mid-level, or you can have three years of just relentless growth and, and qualify, uh, which I always think is an interesting topic. Yeah, super interesting topic. Do you, that was a great, that's a great, a great line. What do you say? Like not every year is created equal. Um, it's like, yeah, you can, as an engineer, you can, you can decide, okay, this year I'm going to just kind of put like the pedal to the metal and I'm just going to learn everything I can either going deep on a topic or going broad and learning a bunch of stuff. And, um, and, uh, yeah, like you will progress differently than you would if you were just kind of like going about your, your day to day, which is not to say that either one is necessarily better or worse than the other one. They're, they're, it's different depending on your, your goals and, and kind of, um, your life. It's, it's, it, it's not to say one, one of them is better than the other, but, um, but I've certainly seen that happen where, um, I'll see a, a period of hyper growth with, with a certain engineer. Well, that's like the two, the top two things. So the first two things this article talks about for things that he did that made him staff in five years is try things out and read documentation. And both of these, um, if you break them down, are habits of consistent exploration or learning and growth. And I think that's the distillation of, of these two and many of these things, which is uh, build habits around consistently learning and consistently reading, uh, which are sort of the same thing, but just... It can, it can kind of take different forms, yep. but trying yep. things out, consistently building stuff like practicing in different languages or whatever. You're a great example of this. And then consistently reading documentation and or blog posts, which is, you know, frankly, why we started this thing. I think from the beginning was like a reason to continue to motivate uh, to read all the time. Yeah. Those habits of consistent education is what gets you the hyper growth because you will look back and say, wow, I did I, without even thinking I've tried five new frameworks and read 50 articles this year, which you may not apply every single day to your job, 
but that right. corpus of knowledge that you build increases that pattern matchability, which is what you need. You need those heuristics to be faster and to make the right decision at the right speed. Uh, and just these types of habits for learning, I think are super critical. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, th- I think a lot about that pattern matching where it's like, I think if you if you're kind of uh, unfamiliar with the concept or if you haven't really felt this this feeling of like pattern matching um, of sort of active pattern matching, what I mean is like is like you you know we we read code all day as a as a programmer you probably read a lot more code than you write like if you're doing things right that's what you're probably doing and as you read more and more code your brain just starts uh, taking in the the shape of what the code looks like even more than any individual word or 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 variable or whatever you know yeah, your exactly. brain is it, it's like matching on the larger patterns uh, but, but it's it's not conscious it's like you 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 need to go through i think a lot of reading in order to get to that point but once you get to a point where you can pattern match um and yeah when i say pattern match it's it's like uh what i mean is is your brain is kind of subconsciously taking in um information that you wouldn't necessarily be able to uh say or it would like take a a, a lot longer to take in word by word than it does taking in a chunk at a time um, I always think about when I learned React for this because when I first got to Wafer, I didn't really know React. I, I, like that was kind of like I tried to keep that secret for a long time because I came in to Wafer <laughs> uh, on the platform team, and I was expect the expectation was that, that I was going to be a React expert, and so I had to really quickly ramp up on becoming a, a React expert. And part of the way I did that was read, reading a lot of code um, and reading documentation. To, to his point, like I read through the React docs. Um, and so I, I kind of have two thoughts here. One is about the pattern matching and reading a lot of React code helped me. I, I saw that process of going from like, I can't really read React to, you know, like it's it's HTML, but it's got JavaScript mixed in and kind of that, that concept was a little foreign to me. Uh, and then I read a bunch and after a few months, I was like, oh, I can just sort of like quickly skim through this and get a sense of when something looks a little weird. And that's the point at which when you're pattern matching, you can drill down on like, oh, wait, something looks weird. I don't quite know what yet. So like, let me figure out exactly what it is at yeah. that point. Yeah, that is that's it. This is the something looks weird part. Um, yeah, because like we have everybody's got bad habits. And if you've read Atomic Habits, it's like the concept of zombies that your brain goes like has this um, finds the easy path and then just hammers that and you end up doing that without even thinking about it. But there's a flip side to that coin, which is the brain can do that for good stuff too. So constantly or consistently reading and adding to the body of knowledge that your brain has takes advantage of that zombie part where you're reading code or think or going to write code and you get that like tingle sort of like it, you know, that spidey sense tingles you're like, Ooh, this doesn't look right. Yes. Or, Ooh, I think this might be, this looks nice. Or I think this might be the right way. And that's that like subconscious just churning through all the stuff that you've added to it. So while you're doing it, uh, remember that you're not doing it for the now, like, you know, you're not necessarily, and you might, you're always adding stuff because you're trying to solve a problem, but just in general, the habit of reading for reading's sake or trying for trying sake in this domain is because it's feeding that beast. If you're like GitHub, we all get mad at GitHub Copilot. Well, we don't get mad. Some of us are excited about it. Your brain is GitHub Copilot. The more you feed it, the better it gets. And mm-hmm. you'll, you'll just start recognizing those things more often and not realize why that's happening, but it's because you've been consistently feeding that machine. Yeah, and I think that's important to remember, like in the doldrums when you're sick of it, you should keep doing it <laughs> as a habit yeah. just because it's going to help you immensely uh, yeah. to grow. 
Yep. I not to not. Uh, I have one more thing to say about the pattern matching before, because I I want to get back to this article. But um, uh, one of one of the people we used to work with, Evan, um, Evan used to another Evan. Um, he he introduced me to this idea of like the toaster mindset when you're when you're doing code review, which is basically like kind of look at it in three phases. The first one is like if you're looking at a toaster, you're like, okay, does it look like a toaster? Does it generally look like what I would expect a toaster to look like? And so same with code, like, does it sort of look like the shapes I've seen before in code? Then the second phase is, does it do what I expect it to? Does it toast bread? Or does this code, you know, uh, take whatever input I'm supposed to get and give me the right output. And then the third phase is like taking it apart and like taking the top off the toaster and inspecting the pieces and making sure that all the wiring is is wired up correctly. And then that's the kind of more granular code review where you're actually looking to see if there are any, any, uh, if they missed anything. Um, So anyway, I thought that was a good, uh, just in terms of pattern matching, it's like compare it to things that you have seen before and that you know really well. Yeah, I actually would love to do like we should do an episode on code review at some point. Yeah, um, yeah. But Evan Davis, or I should say his whole name. My bad. We can edit that out. Evan <laughs> Blank um, taught me a lot about code review. Where that's right. He'll like, never listen to this. He'll never listen. It's like <laughs> is the code in the right place is a great start. Like yeah. you know, is this even in the right area? Is this yeah. like um, yeah? That's a good example. I mean, we've we've changed. Like I've changed my thinking about code review. I don't want to get too much into side recently where it's you shouldn't be doing large scale architectural reviews in a PR. Mm-hmm. Um, the hope would be that you have identified all that and you relatively know what's coming down the pipe in a PR as a senior engineer, that you are involved in that shifting left of the decision-making process. Cause if it's happening, if you're just for the first time seeing like a system designer, like some sort of new architecture in a PR and you're like, Ooh, I don't know about this. Then you've, you might have failed. Like you probably could have intervened earlier in the process. Uh, yeah. I don't want to go too far aside. One thing yeah. that I did, I didn't love, I don't know if I didn't love it, but there was this thing about, it was a weird focus to me, the relentlessly improve efficiency. Yeah, that one cut. So actually, yeah, that, maybe there are two numbers that I didn't love, but yeah, I want to hear what you thought about that one. I don't know if it's not what, I don't know if I didn't love it, but it's, there's a couple things where it's like, get really good at typing and improve <laughs> your speed. You know, like you get good at typing learn keyboard shortcuts, which I agree with, prefer CLIs over GUIs because they're more efficient and automate as much as you can, which I agree. Um, and do use like Alfred. Um, yeah. And all of these things are like what I think of as like sort of token developer behaviors. Yes. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get my um, mechanical keyboard and I'm going to learn Vim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, like, and I'm going to create hey, a series. Hey, watch it. <laughs> yeah, the Vim coalition is going to come after me. And then like I use Alfred and I can I create this like multi-step shortcut to I don't even have to I don't even have to open VS Code. It just opens for me when I think about it and I can make coffee with a keyboard stroke and all this shit. And I think like that's cool, but it's not necessary. You know? Yeah. I, yeah. I can see people taking a, you know, just like a keyboard out of a box, opening up an editor and being successful. You yeah. build all of these things and they make you fast, that's true, but they also make you sort of fragile and super dependent on this ecosystem of optimizations that you've made. And I struggle mm-hmm. with this a lot. There's mm-hmm. a line, you don't wanna be like a Luddite and type every single Git command out every single time. But I also, I kind of like, uh, I don't know, I kind of balk a little bit at these super optimized developer 
uh, protocols that people build for themselves. Because then I think like, what happens if you go somewhere else? Or like, what right. happens What happens if any of this falls over? Or what happens if you have to go pair code with somebody on their laptop and all of a sudden you you don't know how to use it anymore? Like, yeah, because th- you've, you've become so specialized. And yeah, I think there's I- a risk there. Yeah, absolutely. I think about that a lot too. And people talk about these really specialized setups. The other thing about this section I thought was like, I, I don't see this as a necessarily like a staff engineer uh, quality, you no. know, it's, it feels no. like a, yeah, it's like, deve- it's like going from maybe junior to, to like middle of middle of developers kind of figuring out these like, optimizations faster. It's like, like what, yeah, right. Like, what are you doing? But, I mean, we shouldn't, we shouldn't come down too hard on the, on this person that I, I overall, I, I really like the, the article. Um, but it's interesting to get to get into some of the stuff that I think does make a good uh, like in terms of staff engineer, like leveling up your career. Um, you know, things like the um, I mean, teach what you learn. Like we can definitely I want to talk about that. But the um, the one that uh, I thought was actually kind of like a, a sleeper for me was stay, staying humble, um, which I think is really important as you. I think it becomes more important as you level up. So like I'm thinking about situations where uh, you're in a conversation or in a room with somebody who's really senior, maybe staff, maybe like even even a principal, something like that. That person's words have so much gravity, like there's so much uh, they have so much power in their words and they can they if they're if they don't realize it uh, kind of if they're not humble enough to, to realize that like they are in this po- this position of of strength um they can say things that i think can shut down parts of the conversation without even even absolutely to. yeah absolutely. and and I, I remember being in a conversation with somebody um somebody new to the company and I, I was kind of explaining some things about about you know showing them the ropes and um and i had this moment where i where i said something and I realized right after I said it that I, it could how it could have come across. I don't I don't remember exactly what it was, but something like, "Oh, we don't do it like that," you know. "Oh, we don't do things that way," or whatever. And I, I and I realized that like, oh wait, I'm a I'm a staff engineer, and like I need to be careful not to shut down new ideas. I need to be careful to to remain open to people, especially with a fresh perspective, who might want to you who might have a good idea for how to improve something and like i don't want to just say like oh we don't do it that way because like they might see the position that you're that you're coming from you know more than the the that that somebody say like a a a junior engineer who is in the first year of their career saying that sounds very different from somebody who's been working in in uh this this industry for you know seven ten years something like that yeah that's a good point um it's there is also um, a line there too, because you don't want to take a backseat constantly because you are paid to be the like a definitive opinion on something at some point in the line. But I think there's a there's a a real soft skill side to that, where some of the people that I respect the most um, will allow a conversation to run through or like allow a discussion to run through and you can see them skillfully nudge it when, when you're kind of pushing against an upper or lower bound of -hmm. what they think to be reasonable. Um, And then people will come around and then they will help pull ideas out because they know the right questions to ask. And it's almost Mm -hmm. like they have a level of omniscience of, of what's happening here and they can pull, they can ask the right questions to pull opinions out of people. 
because they genuinely want to know and are yep. genuinely curious about what they have to say. Um, so I think there's artificial humble where you're like, Oh, you know, I care. I care. Like I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not, you're smarter than me, but then there's also the, and I fall in prey to that too, where you want to, you, you want to make people feel comfortable so you can self-deprecate. But then there's like true humbleness is just, it's just caring or not believing fundamentally that anyone is more important than anybody else. Like right. uh, my grandfather would say, you know, every man puts his pants on one leg at a time. Uh, and I think that's a good motto to have is that there's no one more important and that can get you in a little bit of trouble in big corporations. Cause some people feel like they should be more important. Yep. Uh, and they get mad if you don't kind of defer to them. But in reality, like if you, every, every single person in the chain is capable of producing a brilliant idea at any time. And if that's like a fundamental belief that you, you try and hold close to you at all times, then I think that that kind of solves, helps solve for that because you just genuinely want to know what people are going to say. Like you're curious and they're in the room for a reason. Um, and you're just curious. So you ask, and I think yeah. that's pretty, I've seen people be, I've seen that be exemplified by a few and not exemplified by others. And I think to me, that's the most attractive quality of like, um, magnanimous leadership where I just see this person who cares about you and cares what you have to say and shepherds your opinion. If you're kind of going saying something that might be really off the rails, they'll just like nudge you back and you feel safe. And and that fosters a lot of really, like really great thought work that I've seen happen because of people like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I, I want to go back to one thing that you said about, uh, how like you are, you don't want to go too much in the direction of like, you know, deferring or anything like that, because you are in the position where people want to, to hear your opinions. They want to, they, they, you're there to make a decision. You're there help to drive decisions forward. And like, there's definitely a balance because you need to both play this role of, yeah, I, I need to help make this decision and I need to weigh the trade-offs and I need to, uh, you know, help, help bring this conversation into a, a productive state. But you also, you, you, you want to be aware that like, uh, by, by taking too, too strong of a stance around people who are, who are uh, more junior, like you, you could be, you could be stepping on, on th- squashing some ideas, I guess. Yeah. And I want to um, say this as well, real quick, before we move off of this is, um, there is nothing attractive or good or valuable about treating cross-functional stakeholders that are non-technical poorly. Correct. Thinking that you are better than them in any way, you're not. Uh, (laughs) And this is to every engineer that's ever thought like, well, we're the, (laughs) we're the reason why without us, nothing would happen. It's like, no, that's not, no, that's not (laughs) what would happen. Like, (laughs) <laughs> you you don't keep the lights yeah you build the product like you're one part in the chain mm-hmm. um so i just want to say that like if you think of non-technical people as less than you're the problem you want to help them understand that's literally your job is to help them understand what you do it doesn't make you look better when you obscure it intentionally or unintentionally and that they don't know and you laugh that's bad um so I just had to yep. say that out loud because that that like rubs me the wrong way so hard where I see people lord knowledge over somebody and and they speak overly technically, I think, as like a compensation mechanism mm-hmm. it, like to product uh, product people or designers or something like that. And I'm like, you don't look smart here. 
mm-hmm. arrogant. You know, and it, it, yeah. smart people are able to translate difficult concepts um, into simple terms. Right. That's that's the skill. Saying saying a complicated thing more complicated is not a skill. Distilling right. the complicated <laughs> thing is a skill. So yeah. I, I always that always just I had to say that out loud. I know it's a little off the rails, but I think that's a quality that I've seen in great staff engineers. Yeah, I don't think it's off the rails at all because I think it leads into what I was the the point that I was going to mention next, which is teach what you learn. Like this is, I think uh, maybe one of the most important parts about about being a multiplier. That's like, to me, a big part of being a staff engineer is being able to show that you're a multiplier. It's not just like writing a bunch of code by yourself. It's being able to write code for one thing that's that's maintainable by other people and that's understandable by other people, but also like taking the things that you learn in your journey to, uh, to do whatever, whether that's like, you know, work your way up in your career or whether it's just get better at your craft, you're, you're constantly learning things. And if you're keeping all of those things inside and keeping them all to yourself, then then you're not being a multiplier. You're, you're adding, you're being additive, but you're, you could be being multi, you know, multiplicative, where if you're teaching other people about these things, as you learn them, uh, you're just kind of like, you're, you're expanding your radius of, of helping the company get better or helping, you know, yes. the organization get better. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, I've seen it a couple of times where, yeah, there's just, there's one person who kind of takes the lead and, and doesn't really share kind of a lot of information about what they're doing, or they build something, they build a big system by themselves. Um, and it works when they build it. It's great. Everybody's really excited because there's this, this shiny new thing. And then some time goes by, maybe a couple of years, maybe even like five years and the person leaves the company. And so now there's these other people who have to maintain it. And it becomes the thing that nobody wants to maintain because nobody really knows their way around it because, you know, because this person kind of built it in a way that worked for them, but didn't, didn't explain um, kind of the, the concepts around why they made the, the decisions they made. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think documentation like kind of goes hand in hand with teaching what you learn, like writing good documentation. There's a part in the article about reading documentation, which I think is also important, but like writing, writing good documentation is all part of teaching because you're teaching Agreed. people who are going to pick up the project. You're teaching yourself, you know, in the future, when you go pick up this project again, I've had a couple of situations where I've been so happy with my, my previous self where I've been like, ah, oh, you know, I open a repo that I haven't seen in a couple yeah. of years. Like, oh, I was so, I, I was, I'm so nice to myself for writing all this documentation. Cause now, cause I had completely forgotten what was going on here. And, and now I, uh, now I know. Yeah. That thanks prior me moment is always really cool. I also I think it. like keeping good documentation allows you, um, in organizations, to come back to things and, ha- and be able to point to something concrete, um, I think is really helpful, like decision records and stuff like that. I, we've started to take stuff like that on yeah. um, where we are, but at a smaller scale, like why you did what you did um, is really helpful to come back around to because you can get in these cyclical development cycles. You're like, oh, we're going to try this thing. And everybody forgot that you already did that a couple of years ago and it didn't work. Um, exactly. And then you write that down. And, and nobody knows why it didn't work. That's kind yeah, of the- no one the, wrote it. They might be like, oh, it failed, but we don't have a good reason. So let's try it again because stuff- Exactly. Yeah. But then exactly. you write it down and you're like, uh, yeah. Right. But actually that 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 is a good point as to why, 
kind of on the flip side, it's good to write things down. Cause like I, I see the benefit on both sides. On the one hand, you could write it down. Here's why we made this decision. Um, here's the context in which we made the decision. And like, so in the future you might say, oh yeah, we already tried that. It didn't work. The nothing's changed really. So like, it's not going to work again. So we can save ourselves a lot of trouble on the flip side. You might say, oh, we have a record of, of the context in which we were doing this. And that's why it didn't work. But actually a, B and C have changed. And so like, this is a perfect, uh, a perfect opportunity to try something like that again. That's and without true. that, without that record, you wouldn't probably have the, you know, that record helps you in both cases. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I want to go back to the, um, teaching others thing. Yeah. Because we've talked about this before. I think it was you that talked about, it was like Dave Rupert talked about developer teams, um, or like the roles of developers, like RPG roles, like the tank and the healer yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. When I think about, you're talking about someone who like built a system by themselves. I think of this stuff called a hero work. And it's, you know, you have this like knight in shining armor or knight S in shining armor um, goes off and says like, I'm going to fix this for everybody and does it. But in reality, just builds a problem for an entire community to then support for like the rest of time. Um, and it looks good for five minutes. So you come back, you're like, ha ha, you know, and you solve the problem and then you leave and everybody just has to maintain this complicated machine that you built. Um, that's something that comes with two things, time and entrenchment, because I guess there's more, but over like in the beginning, you want to be the one that solves everything because, or at least this was me, or I just like felt like I was not good and needed to be the solver because that would show me and show others that I knew what I was doing. And then the other part is like, I felt like I needed to prove that I should still be an employee here. Like, if, you know, if your, your, your employment is predicated on success. So you want to like be visible in that and be the one that solves the problem. Um, over time, if you spend enough like years in an organization, your job is no longer at risk. So you can be more comfortable instead of being the person who is the sole solver of something to be the person that like sources the right people and finds the right consensus and then writes the right thing. And maybe you only write 20 lines of the right code versus 200 lines of something else. Um, but you know that you're not going to get fired or that you're not going to have a bad review or something like that because you've spent enough years and you have a like a reputation of doing good work. So I think that's tough to do at first. So you can't just take that. You can't take that straight up because sometimes right. in your career, you do have to take credit for things and you have to be a little selfish. And yep. that's not something that's a popular opinion, but um, I think it has to happen because of the nature of capitalism and the nature of companies is they're going to hunger games you all against each other at most places because no one can think of a better paradigm for some ungodly reason so like at a certain point, you there is you do have to take some credit for things, but the more entrenched you get, the less you feel that, that kind of imperative and you can develop more with the growth mindset versus a scarcity mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a huge part of like that to me is a great example of, of going from say senior, senior engineer to staff, like the, you know, the titles are kind of funny, but it's like, that is a step in a career. Like that is a, a noticeable step when you go from this sort of like, I want to be the one taking credit or like, I want to make sure that I get the right credit. You know, it's not like you want to take credit for things you didn't do, but you, you basically say like, I want to make sure that people know that I was behind this 
project or whatever, um, transitioning from that into, I want to make sure this other person gets the credit that they deserve for what they're doing. And I think that credit can kind of manifest itself in a couple of different ways because you're still probably getting the credit for maybe supporting that person in, in helping do that work. But you're like telling your manager that you're kind of like communicating that to your manager rather than communicating it outward to everybody. Hey, everybody, I helped. Look at how much I helped this person, you know, with this project. It's, it's more like, you know, you're, it's, it's kind of a more focused thing, but, but it's, uh, it's, there's still some credit there, but it's not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily the, the same type of credit that you are aiming for earlier in your career. And I do all, I, I agree. I do kind of think it's a little bit necessary in the junior engineer or kind of like mid-level engineer, engineer, um, part of your career where you, you have to, to do things and you have to have those things be visible, um, for the reasons that you say, you know, you're, um, you, you, I think part, part of it is for yourself. Like you need to feel confident enough in the fact that you can do the work before you start, uh, shifting the credit onto other people that you are, you're helping lift up around you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's like a, there's this sort of concept of why you only level up to, to get more scope and to sort of make more money. Right. I think that's why people climb ladders in general. It's like, what's progress look like? One of the better for worse, one of the few metrics of progress that we have is like how you're doing, I guess. Um, like, am I, am I progressing in my career? Am I at least gaining more scope, getting better projects or am I making more money? Whatever the, your metric is, um, moving into these levels, there's, um, you're going to get more money or get more levels because not for what's coming out of your brain. This is a really roundabout way of saying level other people up, but it's because your mere presence makes everybody better. And they're like, you produce better quality software and you produce more better quality software. Um, and that's your job is to then not just touch and change what you can control, but to like make literally everybody around you better. So that means you have to uh, take blame, give credit. Like you, you've got to be a servant leader in that regard and say like, what's going wrong? I'm going to eat that up, internalize yeah. it, use my my experience across different things to say, like, how can we fix this, processitize this, improve this, and then distribute that out and give that credit out as people execute on that. And that's not, man- I'm not saying like do that as a manager. I mean, as like a technical leader and I see yeah. You can do that as an IC. You can take in what's going wrong with how you're writing software. You get too many SEVs, whatever it is. You can think of a way to improve that and then spread that pattern throughout the team and watch that metric improve. Yeah. And then you have now improved literally everybody around you and the rising tide lifts all the boats and your organization improves. And that's how you can only get further up the chain by raising the entire ocean. And I think that's how you have to think about it is you're not going to get there by making yourself better. That's part of it, but you make yourself better to make, to raise the entire sea so that you can then go a little higher, but then you look around and everybody's there with you. Yeah. You know, and that's super important because if you just become really, really great and super far ahead in your career and there's nobody to help you, you have created a great trap for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. You're not going to be successful. You need a team around you. Like the whole thing is, the further you get, the more collaborative software development becomes and it's a team sport. And that's something I think, and this I'm sure isn't true for all organizations. I'm right, sure there's right. like 
and this is very much for the bigger company, mid cap to large cap company, where it's colla- and, development and is collaborative. And our personal experience, you know, I think we've both and had our this personal experience. Big caveats, big yeah. caveats. Yeah, I do think there are some corollaries across most software development where it does become collaborative the further you go. Yeah, um, but I'm sure there's ex- you know exceptions. So don't at me because there is nowhere to at. Yeah. I don't have any uh, <laughs> social media or email or anything. Yep. Um, all right. So the one. Uh, the one number we haven't, I, I don't, I think it's the only one we haven't talked about, um, or not number, but you know, the, the, the topic of this, of this article that we mentioned in the TLDR, the one that was my sort of, mm, I don't know about this. This is an asterisk is, uh, chase your passion. So I don't know how you feel about this one, huh. but I see this as, uh, just in general, the, the idea that like chasing your passion is going to get you to where you want to be in your career is a, a trap in my mind that it's like a trap. And I have, uh, at least in my own experience, I have, uh, experience with that where I have had a career where I've, it's, it's been something I was really passionate about. And I, and I, I followed that path and was happy, you know, to a certain extent, but then I uh, kind of stopped being happy and I went the other direction, which is there is a way to, rather than starting with passion and trying to develop a career out of it, there is a way to uh, start with something that, you know, maybe seems like it might be interesting, or maybe if it doesn't seem interesting, you just like, you see something and you're like, well, let me try that. And you can cultivate passion out of that. So like his, this, his whole idea in this, in this part is um, if you, if you really like, uh, you know, if you really like the front end, just like only focus on JavaScript and get really good at JavaScript and really good at the front end and pay no attention to like Rust or C. And uh, and like I, I read that and I was kind of like, well, but if you never try any of the, if, if you're only ever following your passion, you're kind of like putting blinders on in, in, in my mind. Yeah. And uh, it kind of, I think it even goes against actually one of his, one of his other points, which is like, Again, no criticism to this guy. Like it's a great article, and and people are complicated, and and I think I feel like we say that constantly. We're like, no, no shade, no shade. We can have opinions on articles. It doesn't mean we don't like them. Yeah, yeah, but but I think it's good to note that like articles, when people write articles, or you know, when people write articles, they are uh, they are then set in stone, and you can judge these people on what what they've written. But like people are complicated, and they have complicated opinions, and so I think the fact that two of these things are at odds with each other, in my mind, is just that's just the way that things come out of uh, people's brains onto paper, you know? Yeah. But but the idea that, that if you're, if you're not trying new things that don't look interesting at first, you know, that like you don't have any interest in like learning about, I don't know, WASM, for example, like WebAssembly, you're just like, I don't know, too low, too low level. I'm much more interested in what the, what the user's doing. I think you're shutting yourself off from, potentially finding something you might be really interested in if you give it a, if you give it a chance. Yeah, I could not agree more. Um, I think passion is a superpower that you care. However, following your passion, I, I don't think has gotten a lot of people to what they actually want to do because like if you're passionate about something that's new or that you're kind of new to, or you haven't spent years in, then it still hasn't gotten to the point where you've gotten through that middle mile where you're actually getting into the meat of, of something. Um, so I think like I didn't find computer science interesting at all through my whole life. I was a, like, I went to culinary school, <laughs> like I did not do this. And then um, that didn't really work out. And I was like, 
I Googled what's the highest paying industry in the world because I was having money troubles. <laughs> and it just said like software. I was like, cool, I'll do that. And <laughs> I hated it at first. But what's what's interesting is I think a lot of people are similar is you just need enough of a hook to keep yeah. to, to like, is this problem space wide enough for me? Like, is yeah. this something that's going to keep me? And what I, what I learned really early on was there is so much here that I will be, I will, my abyss of knowledge or, or of anti-knowledge, what I know I don't know yep. will never shrink. It will only yep. grow for the rest of my life. And that was both terrifying and very attractive to me because yes. I thought like, I'll never get to a point in my career. I'm like, oh, I figured it all out. Yeah, right. But, and that's like, that was what hooked me in after like a, a year. I had to spend like a year just slogging through stuff, um, saying like, do I even want to do this anymore? Until I started to realize like, well, no, this is, this will be eternally interesting to my mind. Like there, there'll never be a time where I've like run out of things to know or solve. And that means that I can have a fruitful rest of my life doing this. Yep. And I think also you shouldn't just do the things that you want to do. You don't play to your strengths. You don't you, like you play, you, you challenge your weaknesses and that's how you yeah. get stronger. Um, but man, yeah, the idea of just like do what you love is such a, we've all been told that and it's like, doesn't work a lot. Like, because then right. you actually, you're actually doing your job. Like I love to cook. And then I went to go be a cook. And I was like, this sucks, man. Like, right. This right. sucked all the joy out of the thing that I love to do that's as a thing. hobby. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know that it does that for everybody, but, but I had that, no, no. you know, a very similar experience. It's funny that you mentioned that about, about this sort of abyss of anti-knowledge, because I had that exact same realization, you know, when I first started getting into programming, I had that same realization. And that has been the hook that I keep coming back to where it's just like, there is always going to be so much that I don't know. And that is thrilling to me. Like I, I it's, but it's intimidating because you're like, you know, it's intimidating because there, there's just there's some pocket of knowledge that you're like, well, I don't know you, if you get into a conversation about that, you have to admit, I, I don't know. But getting back to the topic, I think that's actually a really important thing to do yeah. in your in your journey, in your career and in your journey, especially to staff engineer is to is to uh, identify the, the pockets of knowledge that you don't have for that situation and find the people who do have that and and say and like, oh, yeah, you know, good point. Re rely on them and and um, because you don't need to know everything. You don't need to be an expert in absolutely everything. You just need to know where to go to find the information and know how to kind of tie it back into what you're doing or connect the people who are who are doing it. This is a an endlessly fascinating topic to talk about. Yeah, it's like I know. how to get to staff because I don't know. I only did it the one time and right. uh, and then it was actually technically revoked by the company because right, they right, changed right. the titles. Not just for uh, you. They, they yeah, they for like, literally everybody. Yeah, yeah. We, we all were like staff engineer at a certain level then we became senior engineers. Um, we got down leveled which is hilarious, but yeah. um, I think like we could talk about this forever. We're also the yeah. 47 minute mark. Yeah, we got, we got obviously something up, I think. we're very passionate about, but I am working on the concept of a book called the art of technical leadership. And I've uh, like been building a bunch of uh, like behaviors or habits you can set to, to kind of get you on this right path that you could set earlier in your career. So, you know, that's a, that'd probably be 10 years before that thing comes out and I'll be wrong by the time it does, but <laughs> it is something that we think a lot about. That's great. Um, all right. So, yeah. So, I, I mean, you're right. We could talk about this forever. Maybe I mean, maybe we'll do some, we'll probably end, this will probably end up being a, a series or something like that. But that's a good um, 
yeah but uh but yeah so let's um let's maybe move it along to um uh to Oh, I just remembered that the sound effect is a nightmare. So what are you learning? Yeah. (laughs) What are you learning? Uh, Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. So what am I learning? I don't have a good one for this. I should have thought like I I should have thought earlier. Um, One thing I have been learning a lot of is systems design. Um, So I was doing that for you know, like interviewing purposes, but then I, it, it also is just like, Oh man, this is awesome. I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, me too. And so I have reading two books. I started off with, um, systems design interview volume two, and then I ended up reading volume one as well. And then I moved on to like sort of the big boy, which is like designing, uh, data intensive applications, uh, which is like one of those O'Reilly 7 million page books that's super dry. Mm-hmm. And though it is dry, um, like you don't, I don't get to do systems design at work very often, actually at all. I think the last time I did it was like two years ago and it was like a largely front end concept. Um, but man, it's freaking cool. I want to know who gets to do that on a regular basis because <laughs> that it's just like fun to think about. So, uh, I'm still reading that book, even though I don't need to right now anymore, uh, for like interview purposes, but I'm still reading it because it's fascinating. So I'm almost done with that this week. Um, I was reading, you know, it's pretty much like an every morning thing. I'm just kind of chugging through and taking general notes and I'm really enjoying that. Nice. That sounds great. Um, well, let's see, what am I, what am I learning? So I'm, I'm, I don't have anything, um, that we haven't talked about that I'm kind of in active learning on, but I have been, this is maybe it's kind of silly, but I've been playing this game, uh, called GeoGuessr and I feel like I've been like learning a lot about the world through this game it's wild like I, it's sort of you nice. know it's like it's it's is this game where where it's like uh you know you're dropped into the it's like google street view and and the game just drops you in somewhere in the world and you basically have to figure out where you are so there's okay. these different modes where you can you can take all the time you want and you can you know try and pin it down to like the exact street or there are these competitive modes where you try and kind of figure out as fast as you can where generally you are in the world. But I've just been learning so much about like what different parts of the world look like. I had no idea how flat Argentina is. Like all of, you know, a lot of the lower part of South America is is completely flat. And I just kind of pictured it as all like Patagonia down there. Um which is not. like the western side, right? Uh, like Chile yeah, it's like is very, all mountains, yeah, exactly. Because the yeah, Andes yeah. go, yeah, go down the. So anyway, but uh, stuff like that, and like you get dropped into um, into um, uh, Mongolia and like you know Kazakhstan or whatever, and sort of like these places look nothing like what I sort of pictured or what they're portrayed as in some movies. That's yeah, it's it's just I don't know. Maybe it's kind of feels a little bit a uh, little bit off topic, a little like super nerdy but um but yeah, yeah it's, I, I, it's, it's what you're learning oh man it's great also like as just on that note i remember getting um dropped into the eastern part of afghanistan for the first time a number of years ago um as part of my service and i was like this isn't what i thought this place looked like mm. it was mm-hmm. like <laughs> i was at almost nine thousand feet of elevation to start wow. it was just like all super rocky and then i ended up going to the south and it was this and like incredibly humid farmland. It was like four different climate zones, depending on which part of the country you were in. And I was like, I thought this was a desert, man. Like I thought wow. I was going to a desert and then I forgot all oh, that's Iraq. And then it's just weird to 
I don't know. I don't have good a good grasp on what countries are like uh, geographically. I guess, which yeah. is to your point. Go play this game. Go play GeoGuessr. I can do that. Um, <laughs> or or watch Tom Davies play GeoGuessr on YouTube. The guy's a guy's a compelling. I have actually watched some of those videos. Yeah, it's super um, fun. So now we get to the uh, happy part of the podcast, the which is sailing away on the good news cruise. That's right. Uh, okay, so I went first in the learning one. What's your good news? All right. So my good news, I actually have one this week, and it's not local. It's very not local. So I read that um, the, the uh, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but the, the Great Barrier Reef in, uh, in uh, uh, Australia, <laughs> See, I'm talking about all about geography. Oh, I know so much about geography that I forget <laughs> Australia. Um, Great Barrier Reef is at, at the highest coral coverage in like 35 years or something like that. What? I thought it was getting decimated or something. What happened? I, I thought so too. I don't know. I don't, it sounded like good news. Um, I'll be honest. I mostly read the headline, so I need to go back and read. The, nice, Joe. See, <laughs> see the, I need to read the details, but I was just like, oh, there's some good news. I can talk about that. I like it. Providing a, a nugget for people to then go and discover. Exactly. Uh, see, which that's I will what being because... a staff engineer is all about. Yeah, just just get get people curious. Give them a little hook, pop, pop, fish hook, and then they get excited, and then they go off and find something. Um, that is good news, and I want to know why. But, I, you know, that's great because I thought I was getting bleached or something. I thought it was, like, on the downtrend. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. What about you? I also have uh, I have environmental news as well. Oh. So I was uh, recently turned on to this thing called a nonprofit called Just Dig It. And they have a, um, a process where they dig these things called buns. So this, they, their project they did it in um, Kenya. So like one of the issues with uh, areas like Kenya is that they've been sort of deforested or turned into deserts, like uh, the aridification of these countries because either they overgrazed them or, you know, who knows what. And then you get this really hard topsoil and nothing grows and then it becomes a desert and then the whole area becomes unusable. So they have this really simple solution. And I love this. They basically just like dig a semicircle hole and they dig a bunch of them and just leave them there because there is some rain. But the problem is the topsoil is so hard, it just runs off. But these these holes that are about like 15 feet in, in diameter, semicircles, catch some of the water long enough to let vegetation take hold. Huh. And then over time, they turn entire areas green again. Wow. It's, it's like the... They dug 150,000 of these things in this cuckoo group ranch. And now it's like green. It's the whole thing. Wow. It was just a desert before and it is freaking green. So it was like the simplest solution. Just people get out and dig a hole. And they dig a ton of those holes. And then it, it just gets enough water that you can get vegetation to take hold. And you can literally change an entire area. So they, they're like looking to expand these operations. And I will say... I didn't dig deep enough to know, is this organization spending their money well? I'm not saying go like give them money or anything. But I think it's a really cool idea to try and um, reverse aridification by doing something like this. And it seems like it mm -hmm. can be applied in other places, like in the you know American Southwest potentially. Um, could, could be interesting to maybe get more vegetation. More vegetation is good for you know carbon emissions. More vegetation is good for everybody. So this really simple solution where you can go out and do it yourself uh, 
can solve a big problem. And I, I like that stuff like that always gets me juiced up. Yeah, totally. It's like, it's like, feels, feels like it goes, goes hand in hand with the, these like small habits, you know, build, build big changes. Exactly. Um, all right, everybody. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, we're 56 minutes in. We probably should have made it about 35 minutes, but, uh, but I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, any last words, Evan? Uh, I almost said shopdocshow.com because I've heard that same <laughs> for like 10 years. <laughs> uh, RuntimeRundown.com. There you go. What's a good, how can we like put a bow on that? Mm-hmm.